The concept of the forever war. Good, bad or ugly? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. So I plan to be speaking about the concept of a forever war in and around Ukraine. But before I do, and I suppose in some ways speaking of forever wars, I just want to throw in the first in what may well become an, a little episodic series of short segments called Why Everything is Britain's Fault. As I've talked in the past, the Russians do have let's just say, an interesting and complex relationship with Britain, or at least with the Britain of their imagination, which is at once a stalwart bastion of legality, perfectly manicured lawns, Oxbridge colleges and, and of course, the fog, and at the same time, their most subtle and insidious antagonist, who may not have the resources of the United States, but make up for it with their nefarious schemes. Anyway, there was a, a, an article, well, I suppose I should call it an article, um, in Rasiska Gazeta, the Russian uh, state newspaper, under the headline, Bosnian expert Jevad Galiasevich, Great Britain is interested in a world war, which was a title that instantly got my attention. Anyway, uh, who, who is Jevad? Well, I mean, he is described as a Bosnian expert on international terrorism and political Islam, though others may well describe him more as a conspiracy theorist. I mean, for example, he regarded COVID-19 as, quote, a terrorist concept. And even more explicitly, the uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina Minister of Security, Dragan Mektic, called him a quasi-expert and warmonger. So, you know, I think this is someone, it is fair to say, whose credentials may well be contested. Anyway, what does he say? He says, Great Britain, as part of its activities, is today the largest destroyer of security in the Balkans, constantly undermining the constitutional order of the states of the region and threatening the shaky peace. Well, aren't we just so naughty? Why is this? Well, London's policy on the peninsula starting with the wars of the Ottoman Empire against Tsarist Russia, formulated all its actions and geopolitical interests, military and political goals, in the context of preventing the strengthening of Russia's ties with the Balkan countries and the expansion of Moscow's influence here. Now, obviously, there is a certain amount of truth in that if we're talking about the historical record. I mean, it was certainly true that, that Britain, as part of an overall policy which you know, could be... I think not necessarily very generously, but quite accurately described as to keep the continent warring against each other so that Britain could go and exploit the advantages of being a maritime power and go and plunder the rest of the world freely. Well, I mean, in that context, absolutely, it did not want to see Russian uh, influence expanding within the Balkans, especially because that would be at the expense of a declining Ottoman Empire. And 
the Ottoman Empire, for all its numerous flaws, was at least a, a useful counterweight. But look, that is history. That Those were precisely the days in which the sun did not set on the British Empire. This is, you know, we're really talking about pre-World War I days. Now, as the uh, esteemed Javad may or may not have realised, things have moved on since then. Britain, for all its aspirations to being a nation that punches above its weight and this, that and the other, it does not, I think it's fair to say, regard itself as in a position to be the arbiter of the disputes of the continent or even of, of the Balkans. So, I mean, there, there is an odd degree in which actually, you know, we're looking at a modern world through the very much the prism of the 19th century. But, but there you go. You know, he talks about this is why the, why the British persecute the Serbian people and those countries in which the Serbs are an important factor. And specifically, at this point, I was thinking, you know, I can't help think that it's quite difficult to square that with the fact that Britain is, I wouldn't say absent in the Balkans, not at all. But in terms of, you know, it, it is not playing a particularly strong role on the ground. There are other players that are much more evident, whether we're talking in terms of you know, military forces or engagement through you know, the European Union and its enlargement process and the like. Aha! But I was clearly being way, way too naive. This is why the British are accumulating their intelligence potential and special forces in the region without officially participating in any peacekeeping operation. Thus, they do not participate in the European Union peace cooperation, sorry, peacekeeping operation Althea in Bosnia and Herzegovina, or the K4 NATO mission in Kosovo and are not under anyone's command. This provides them with enormous opportunities to organise special operations to destabilise the situation and provoke conflicts. So, in other words, they are so dangerous precisely because no one can see them there. It obviously shows that they are, in some ways, Britain clearly is the nuclear submarine of the international diplomacy. We run silent, we run deep, but we are also deadly, apparently. So, why? Why is, is, is the UK still doing this? Well, Javad continues, along with active Russophobia, the main element of British policy, because as, as we know, you know, Russophobia is the one thing that motivates every Brit, one should take into account London's centuries-old intolerance and hatred of Islam. And how did that manifest itself, one could ask? Well, have no fear, Javad will tell you. To discredit Islam as a great religion of peace and tolerance, more than two centuries ago, British intelligence, so in other words, yes, in the early 1800s apparently, supported the ideologist of the radical teachings of Muhammad, Ibn, al, sorry, Ibn Abd al-Wahhab. The Anglo-Saxons called this concept Wahhabism. Now, have you heard of Wahhabism? If you have... I would be willing to wager that it's actually because of one country which actually uses this term to talk about whether it's jihadism or Islamic extremism or whatever of a certain variety. And that country, it's worth saying, is not Britain, it's Russia. I mean, I must admit, the very first time I came across this term Wahhabism, I was thinking, what on earth is this? And had to look it up and realised that it was a very, very specific Russian term. But anyway, let me just sort of conclude by saying what uh, Javad says, you know, from coming obviously from what he calls the imperial model of a criminal society created on an isolated island. Well, that, 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 that tells us. So 
In connection with the escalation of tensions in the Balkans, experts are increasingly talking. I always love that kind of formulation. It's, it's actually, um, you know, sort of quite quite a nice one. You know, just simply just refer to yes, everyone is talking about this. All the cool kids are. Anyway, experts are increasingly talking about the invisible hand of London, which is playing its game here with a characteristic style, undermine and deny. And is ready, unlike Washington, so, you know, for, for those of you who are Americans, apparently you're the, I wouldn't say good guys, but better guys here. Anyway, unlike Washington, to once again light the fuse of the powder keg of Europe for the emergence of large-scale world conflict. So here you have it. Now, some people would, would regard this as absolute barking mad nonsense. However, we must remember that, as Javad concludes, Britain, as an international cancer that has given birth to the global metastasis of evil in the form of the United States, clearly we cannot be trusted even to actually make pass comment on other people's perspectives. This is, I mean, I, I, I touch on this, A, because it is, as I said, just so gloriously over the top. Um, and I this uh, Britain as the international cancer that has metastasized as the United States. But it's also really interesting because it is coming precisely in Rasiska Gazeta, which, look, as I said, it's a government newspaper. It is, I think I have used the word in the past, stodgy which is, I think, a fairly sort of safe assessment of something that is really quite sort of dull and pedestrian, obviously hyper-loyalist, um, but not on the whole given to some of the more extreme flights of fancy you'll find in the tabloids. And therefore it's really quite interesting that you have something that is so unrelievedly nonsensical coming up there. And it really does, I think, emphasise two things. One, the degree to which you know, Britain is clearly the root of all evil. But secondly, the fact that there is an attempt to portray the West, and in this case particularly Britain, as precisely being the, the unseen hand, to use that expression, the instigator behind so much that's gone wrong in the world. It doesn't matter if we're talking about tension in, in the Balkans, if we're talking about uh, hunger in sub-Saharan Africa, if we're talking about uh, you know, renewed concerns about Taiwan. One way or the other, it'll be the West, and as I said, more often than not Britain, that is at fault. And it's, it's, worth, it's worth touching on that, not, not just because uh, I just enjoy looking at these opportunities of demonstrating just how far the Russians have a, not, not, not just a bee, but a whole hive in their bonnet about Britain. But also because it does actually speak to the core issue that I wanted to talk about today, which is this notion which we're beginning to see. I mean, actually, no, I should use Javad's phrasing. Experts are increasingly talking about it. No, but seriously, I mean, it, it is cropping up much more. You know, is this struggle, the Ukraine war or the wider struggle with Russia going to become a forever war? Now, I regard this, I must say, as a deeply unhelpful concept. Firstly, because there are no forever wars, um, come to think of it, except for a not bad science fiction book by Jack Haldeman. No, Joe, Joe Haldeman, I think. Anyway, by Mr. Haldeman. Let, 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 let's go formal. Um, but beyond that particular science fiction book, no, no war is a forever war. There can be very long ones. But the, the very sort of formulation of it makes it seem as if this is almost something that is inescapable. And if it is inescapable, then it is much like the weather. All we can do is cope with it. We can't look beyond it to think how it can be changed. 
And that is precisely probably how Putin would like us to think about it. So what I really want to do is start by looking at precisely how, in a way, Putin himself is taking advantage of this whole notion of a forever war at home. Now, I'm recording this on Sunday, the 1st of October. The 30th of September was an official holiday in Russia, a new one with a phenomenally inelegant and clumsy name, the Day of Reunification of New Regions with the Russian Federation. In other words, it's marking the annexation of the Ukrainian Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson and Zaporizhia regions last year, even though Russia didn't even control them then, let alone now. And in this respect, it actually also marks a kind of a watershed moment. I mean, 1st of October, a lot of new changes came in, including, for example, the fact that citizens or people who want to become citizens or long-term residents now have to pass the test not only of the Russian language, but also of Russian history. And I think we can be pretty confident that uh, this, this, this glorious watershed moment is, is going to feature in there somewhere. Nonetheless, the celebrations, and there were a lot of really quite high-profile celebrations, they, they provided an opportunity for Putin to go back to one of his current obsessions. And that is that the struggle that is going on is not just straight, straightforwardly uh, a war between a special military operation between Russia and Ukraine, but instead something much wider, much, much more existential. I mean, in his speech, he said that it was a struggle for the motherland, for our sovereignty, spiritual values, unity and victory. Let me just quickly unpick those. For the motherland. Well, OK, fair enough. That, that, that's a boilerplate. For our sovereignty. I mean, this is the, the irony, the very bad taste irony of the current Russian line is that an attempt to impose a puppet regime on a neighbour because that neighbour wanted to exert its own sovereignty in aligning itself with the West, well, that is actually an attempt to retain Russian sovereignty. That This is actually all about a grand ploy in order to isolate and marginalise Russia. So, you know, sovereignty is defined in terms of not how it is meant to be in international law, which means that basically every country is meant to have equal sovereignty, no matter how big, how large, how weak, how mighty. No, sovereignty is something that you impose upon others. You basically demonstrate that you have sovereignty by preventing other people from constraining it. And what, what does that mean? Well, that means that essentially if Ukraine is not able to stop the Russians from doing things to it, it demonstrates that Ukraine never had real sovereignty in the first place. Sovereignty is actually a battlefield rather than a right. Secondly, spiritual values. We, we, we get to hear this a lot. It's hard to know quite what spiritual values mean these days. I mean, yes, of course, there's a lot of that whole, you know, church and family and so forth. But the interesting thing is that essentially spiritual values are about your duties as a Russian citizen rather than your rights. It is about essentially doing what you're told, but doing what you're told in the name of something grand. And I can't help think that this is actually pre-revolutionary, pre-1917 czarist ideology. 
this notion that essentially there was a hierarchy that the Tsar was the Tsar because God said so, and thus it was the you know, spiritual duty of every Russian to obey the Tsar and indeed to fit their position within the hierarchy. And if you do that, uncomplainingly, that's what gets you to go to heaven. Well, essentially, you know, reskin that in a much more secular age, and essentially that's what you've got. That virtue, spiritual value, is in doing what you're told, and doing so enthusiastically and happily. And that is what provides unity and, presumably Putin hopes, victory. So this is his offer to the Russian people. And it, look, it's one that we, we've known for some time. If you go back to his uh, rather stark and stern speech at the 2023 Victory Day parade, which frankly offered very little victory and much more blood, toil, sweat and tears, you know, he declared that a real war has been unleashed against our homeland. And he very much raised the spectre of World War II, the Great Patriotic War, and warned that civilization is again at a decisive turning point. Why is that? Because Western globalist elites, and let, let's be honest, that language could just as easily have been about nefarious Britain in, in the Balkans. But anyway, Western globalist elites were determined to destroy and decimate Russia. Now, on the one hand, this is all an apocalyptic alibi for the fact that the special military operation in Ukraine has not achieved its initial goal, in other words, of essentially appointing a, a puppet regime, nor indeed its kind of secondary plan B goals of consolidating control over the southeast of, of Ukraine. So, yeah, it is a bit of an alibi. No, 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 we, no, we haven't lost because now we're not actually fighting Ukraine, we're fighting the entire collective West. But it's much more than that, I would suggest. When Putin talks of this as one of the decisive battles for the fate of our motherland, I think he's also speaking from the heart. I think he's actually expressing something that he has come to believe, not least because this is the new creed of his regime. He offers no real clear vision of the future. He certainly is not really offering any kind of hope and that's going to be quite interesting when we come to the presidential election campaigns next year, because it's very hard to campaign without some kind of vision. Instead, what we do have, and this is where the kind of forever war concept comes in, is the great patriotic military operation. This sense that the struggle itself becomes the fundamental vision. And it was quite interesting the degree to which you're even getting officials who are not from the kind of Z-head, ultra-patriotic, nationalist wing of politics beginning to kind of play to this. When talking about the new budget for the, the, the coming financial year, Finance Minister Siluanov, not one of nature's orators, I think it's fair to say, evoked a Second World War sort of motto when he talked about everything for the front, everything for victory. And I'll talk a little bit more about the budget in a little while. So it's just this, this message that the nation is locked in an existential struggle with, with the West. Totally negative. It's based around the fact that the West hates us. And if we do not fight, then we go down. 
And in that context of negative negativity, it is very much looking for evidence of that, whether it's from some, some might say, barking mad uh, Bosnian expert, or more generally, I mean, for example, the recent Canadian blunder in which Parliament was invited to give a standing ovation to someone who turned out to be a veteran of the Ukrainian Galicia SS division in the Second World War. Yeah, that was not just simply a, a phenomenal failure of staff work and a, and a ba and, and of basic historical knowledge. You know, it was also perfect grist to Putin's propaganda mill because it not only was presented as, as proof that Ukrainians are Nazis and that the West likes Ukrainian Nazis, but also a very definite call back to the original Great Patriotic War. Now, this kind of forever war that he's offering does sound like a terribly grim prospect, but from Putin's perspective, it does have clear virtues. Look, there's nowhere getting around the fact that the war is a catastrophe for Russia. I mean, we don't know the precise figure of the dead and wounded, but you know, if we accept the more so I say, you know, credible and, and, and sensible sounding Western estimates. We're talking about over 190,000 already and counting. The economic scarring is going to take years to heal, even in that future never Neverland when peace has been agreed and sanctions have been lifted. And I think the second order effects are going to be catastrophic, particularly, for example, the impact on un already underfunded public services when they suddenly have to cope with the burden of large numbers of physically and psychologically damaged veterans. I mean, this is, going to be, this is something that's actually going to play out over generations. And I, I mean, I'd mentioned that uh, I have a report that will be coming out later this year with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime on precisely how the Russian underworld has been affected by the war so far. And I'll devote a podcast to it when that comes out. But I mean, one of, one of the many factors is precisely actually the degree to which we're already seeing veterans. And I'm not just talking about ex-convicts who went into Wagner and were then uh, released from service after their six months were up. You know, we're talking about people who were not naturally slavering murderers beforehand, but who are been, have been seriously damaged and are kind of generating a new kind of criminality within Russia, just as if we go back, one can look at the, the Afghan war's effect on the Soviet Union. So lots and lots of bad stuff, but it's also an opportunity. As this war becomes the organizing principle of late Putinism, it doesn't just excuse, it demands the tightening grip of repression which we've seen as, as Putin, which anyway, Putin's going to need to maintain his control of the nation now that his old model of politics, the sort of postmodern, we give you no alternatives, but we give you nice telly and, and a fridge freezer. Um, you know, now that is, is becoming less, less valid. So even the mildest dissent becomes treason. And you know, the, the, the massive shift of resources to the defence sector becomes a necessity. I mean, if one looks at the latest budget. Now look, I, I am not an economist, which is, saying that is a little bit like saying that a giraffe is not a natural potholer, I think that would be spelunker in American. You know, it, it's true, but it does rather flatter by understatement. You know, but even I can notice something. When you're seeing military expenditure increasing by 70% next year, 
to a level of something like three times the combined budgets for health, education and environmental protection. When it reaches 40% of the budget, and for most of the time, the Soviet Union, which you know, was described in some ways as sort of a military-industrial complex with a state attached, you know, there for most of the time it was about a third, not 40%. So overall, this, this is, you know, security expenditure is about 10% of GDP. Remember, the, the level that NATO says the country should strive to reach, and yet many, many still do not, is 2%. You know, in those circumstances, you know, it is clear that not only have you made war fighting central to your economic model, but the only reason you can accept that is when you make it also central to your political model. So as I said, this is what I mean about war becoming essentially the organizing principle of the state. Now, on the battlefield, Putin can tell himself that he wins by not losing. That, well, yes, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has broken through at, certainly at least the first defensive line in the Zaporizhia region to the south and has certainly, by all accounts, punched some local breaches in the second. But nonetheless, you know, it's, it's still unclear, I think it's fair to say, whether Kyiv will be able to reach what appears to be its ambition of cutting the Russian forces in two by striking through two the Sea of Azov, or at the very least bringing the road and rail links of the land bridge between Crimea and the Russian mainland under what's called fire control, which is the sort of the modern fancy term for saying they can shell it. That is not, it's worth stressing, going to be some kind of magical solution because fine, you can shell them, but that doesn't actually cut these routes. Things still will get through. You know, but nonetheless, I mean, it, it, it's still unclear how far the Ukrainians are going to get before it's likely that winter rains make offensive operations that much more difficult to, to obtain. And if they don't, well, then Moscow gets another winter to build more defensive lines, raise extra troops, and generally hope that Western will will begin to, to falter in terms of continuing to, to bankroll this war. And so what I want to do after the break is turn a little bit more the other way around. Rather than how the Putinist state uses this concept, you know, essentially the, the forever war as an internal organizing and justificatory concept, and look a little bit more about how this actually affects the debate and thus the politics outside of Russia. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. Talking about the new federal budget, it's interesting that although it has this massive increase in security-related spending in the coming year, it actually envisages that figure declining in 2025. Now, look, this could just simply be whistling in the wind and simply budget by budget planning by hope but it also suggests that in fact they have some sense of how long they think this war is going to go on. Now, 
it's impossible to know for us really to know whether or not Putin genuinely believes that Russia can drag some kind of victory out of his Ukrainian debacle, or whether in some ways he has he feels he has no alternative but to hope that he can outlast his enemies. Nonetheless, in that context, the more there is talk of a forever war, well, actually, the more there is the opportunity to play on this to precisely to try and demoralize his enemies. Let me start with the most difficult topic, which is actually talking about Ukraine's will and capacity to continue fighting this war. Yes, I know they have demonstrated extraordinary determination. And whenever there are opinion polls, Ukrainians always say that, no, absolutely, this war must be prosecuted until all occupied territories have been uh, deoccupied. I'm sorry, it's such an ugly expression. Um, why not, again, what is, what is wrong with liberated? And at the same time, in some cases, they, they say that it should continue also until certain levels of reparations and, and, and justice for the people who started this war and whatever else. Okay, that, that's fair enough. But just as one has to question sometimes Russian opinion polling because it's being carried out in an authoritarian regime and people will answer in certain ways because it's safer, so too, for very, very different reasons, we might sometimes want to question these opinion polls of Ukrainians. You know, there they are. They are in this sort of truly, I mean, this really is an existential struggle for U Ukraine's freedom and sovereignty. And in that context, look, everyone knows what they're expected to say. The opinion polls tend not to ask rather more uh, pointed and arguably thorny questions, such as how many casualties do you think we ought to be willing to accept for this particular objective or, or that? And I can understand why not, if nothing else. It's, it's an impolite question to ask, but still, we have to recognize that Ukraine has proportionately suffered higher human losses from this war, both on the battlefield as, as well as at home, than, as I said, proportionately than Russia, even though in absolute numbers, Russia has suffered more on the battlefield. The economy, I mean, although it, it, you know, it actually is, as economies tend to, managing to find some ways of stabilizing itself, but, you know, it is still doing so in a situation in which it is, it is buoyed and cocooned, if I can mix my metaphors, by you know, truly epic amounts of economic support from the West. And it, in that context, you know, it, it is not impossible to wonder how long, given that there is still no will on the part of the West to deploy combat troops, though there is now talk in the UK of sending soldiers or more soldiers to Ukraine for, for training and so forth. But you know, in that context, given it's the Ukrainians who are going to have to do with the fighting and the dying, you know, one has to ask, actually, you know, can that continue? And again, look, one of the most fundamental ways that you undermine a nation's morale is by denying it hope. And so I think from the Russians' point of view, the more they can convey this sense that they can sit back and absorb whatever human, military, political, social, diplomatic and other costs may be associated with this war. And sure, they may not be winning. Sure, they may be often being pushed back. But nonetheless, they can take it as long as necessary. You know, at some point, that might begin to sap the Ukrainians' ability to also continue. 
So that's, you know, I think I would suggest, you know, from Moscow's point of view, hope number one, and as I said, very much associated with the idea that this will be a war forever. Secondly, there is very much the question of what does this mean for the actual ending of the war? Look, it's one thing to imagine a Ukrainian military victory in which an increasingly antiquated and demoralized Russian army is driven out of maybe all of Ukraine, maybe all of Ukraine bar Crimea, who knows. But anyway, on the you know, basis of qualitatively and technologically superior Ukrainian forces. But as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, there is a gap between that and lasting peace. In and of itself, that just simply relocates the front line to the national borders, giving Russia the opportunity to, to restart the conflict, to continue to lob missiles over it and so forth whenever it wants. So you know, in that context, there is a fact that the whole concept of the forever war is, I would suggest, leveraged precisely to try and emphasize this point. Ultimately, Ukraine, ultimately West, you're going to have to talk to us if you don't want this to be an eternal conflict and an eternal drain on your population, Ukraine, your coffers, West. Well, if that's not what you want, if you want to avoid the forever war, you're going to have to come and give us a deal. What is it that you're willing to offer? One of the most sort of fundamentally powerful ways of starting a negotiation in your favor is precisely to put the other side into the position of wanting this deal to succeed the most. So the more that we have this notion of forever war being discussed and pondered and the more it runs the risk of seeping into our consciousness, becoming just one of the ways we think about this conflict, well, from, from the Kremlin's point of view, the more likely it is that we will actually begin to think, no, we can't do this forever, so we might as well start trying to make a deal now. And after all, Putin is trying to convey, with certain amount of success, a sense precisely that he can take this as long as needed. The handling of the Prigozhin mutiny, indeed the whole Prigozhin affair, I would say, did not cast Putin in a particularly good light, but nonetheless Prigozhin's death certainly, I think, left people unwilling, I think it's fair to say, to, to challenge the regime for the moment. Sanctions are having a real effect on Russian defence production, but they're not able to prevent its escalation, and the overall Russian economy is not in any way facing collapse. Casualties don't seem to be deterring Russians from volunteering to fight even. I mean, this is interesting that the general staff has, has very recently said quite explicitly that it does not plan another mobilization of reservists. And although they have announced the, the usual next uh, round of conscriptions, They've also made it very, very clear, explicit, that conscripts are not going to be deployed to the conflict zone. Now, things may change, and I'm still, I still, I must admit, feel that there is likely to be another wave of mobilization, especially since the, I think it's estimated as 130,000 know, conscripts are not available for, for the war effort. But, but the point is that the regime is trying to convey the sense that there are so many volunteers that they are enough to fill the needs of the special military operation. 
and therefore mobilization is unnecessary, but implicitly and therefore this war is an entirely bearable burden. So, although no war lasts forever, peace is still well over the horizon. However, I want to conclude by in some ways looping this back to, to where we started, which is talking about the impact of this notion of, of a forever war on Russia itself. And then I was essentially talking about the political system, how Putin uses it. It's worth just dwelling on well, what is it that ordinary Russians, in, insofar as we can tell, seem to, to be thinking. And of course, when we, we've got to realise that when we talk about ordinary Russians, there is no sort of standardised version of what Russians think. There was an interesting article in um, Erbeka by Valery, well, uh, an interview with rather Valery Fyodorov, who's the head of Vutsiom, which is it's worth noting a, a polling agency, but it's the state polling agency. So you know, it it has a tendency to be a little bit more cautious in its relationships with the regime. But nonetheless, what he was doing was he he took the a concept that had been raised by the Minchenko Consulting Group, and he said more or less look, that there there are four Russias we're talking about. There's warring Russia, which is mobilized, supportive of the uh, the war, you know, believes in this whole everything for the for the front nonsense, and maybe accounts for about fifteen to twenty percent of the total population. Then there's capital Russia, which I suppose one could also call called metropolitan Russia, um, and you know he was suggesting that it amounts to about I don't know twenty million people, which is what maybe fifteen percent of the total Russian population. And these are essentially the liberal metropolitan middle class who have been shocked by what's happened and essentially have sort of withdrawn on themselves, withdrawn away from interactions with the state. In some ways they're in denial. Then there's deep Russia, which is the majority of the population, he put it around at least 60%, who are, they're not especially political. They're not necessarily especially pro-war, but on the other hand, nor are they especially anti-war. And then finally, there is the Russia that's left, the people who've actually fled the country. And the interesting thing is, I mean, you know, there's also this notion that in some ways they, they're, they're all somewhere on the uh, classic stages of grief in that uh, you know, the, the metropolitan Russia is in denial, deep Russia is in the sort of bargaining phase and the sort of warring Russia is angry because precisely it uh, you know it, it feels that, that Russia is beleaguered. Anyway so you know we have a multiplicity of those but what I thought was particularly interesting was the degree to which Fyodorov then went on to talk about actually how they see the future. I think this is absolutely crucial. I said that the regime really is offering them nothing except for actually uh, considering the fact that I've already raised one particular science fiction parallel. Um, in some ways, I think that the regime is, is offering them the mantra, the subtitle of the Warhammer 40,000 universe, which is in the grim darkness of the far future, there is only war. So. That's a very negative, dystopian even, perspective. Do Russians internalise that? Is that really how they see their future? Are they accepting of that? Well, even Fyodorov, 
who, as I said, is not likely to be a particularly outspoken critic of the government, nonetheless, he brought forth four different scenarios for you know what different particular groups think of when they look at their West and what they want and what they think they may happen. And the first one he talks about is comfortable Russia, which is that, well, we, we will live like the idealized West, where everything is comfortable, prosperous and, and beautiful, and very much in the image of Moscow today, or at least how most people think of Moscow. So that's comfortable Russia. The second one he talks about is the techno-gadget future. High technology, flights to Mars, cyborgs, driverless cars, the borders are permeable, the world is more or less united. I mean, in some ways this is, on the one hand, it's this very kind of globalised notion. On the other hand, it, it is more than a little bit cyberpunk. Um, but very much this is, you might say, one in which technology is, dri is driving the future and it's a bit scary but also a bit exciting. But crucially, this notion of borderlessness, it is one actually which, in which explicitly the concept of the nation, the motherland at that, is no longer a crucial organizing notion. Now the third image, by contrast, is Great Russia. And in Fyodorov's words, this is a country that can say no. She's feared and respected throughout the world for her strength and firmness. The country that won the special military operation does not stop there, but plays an important role in the world. And this is very much the kind of uh, image of the future that the, the warring Russia proportion of the population may see. And fourthly and finally, and to me, I, I, I think this is in some ways a little bit more um, connected with the comfortable Russia, but anyway, the fair Russia. And he describes this as a country where inequality has been overcome, where justice has turned from a slogan into a norm, where equal opportunities are provided for the children not only of officials and billionaires, but also ordinary people. He says, this image is closer to people of old age, including those approaching retirement, with moderate left-wing sympathies and nostalgia for the USSR. So his suggestion is actually that, that these can all be combined, really, into what he calls USSR 2.0, or Soviet Union without communism. So, you know, it's essentially liberal and progressive. It has low inequality, but nonetheless, it is a strong player on, on the world scene. It's authoritative in the world, but everyone lives comfortably. Now, this, it has to be said, on the one hand, sounds very much like Alexei Navalny's notion of the beautiful Russia of the future. You know, as long as you put enough of an emphasis on fighting corruption and, and inequality. But what really encouraged me about this, two things. One, more, more generally, is precisely this is not in the main, with the exception of the great Russia. This is not actually the, the vision that, that Putin is, is at all presenting, or rather selling. And the other associated point is that this, these various visions of the future, and indeed the, the notion of being able to kind of combine them together, that is all quite banal in the best possible sense of the word. This is actually what most people would probably say about their own country and how they'd like it to be in the future. Who ultimately wants to live in an ugly, backward and unfair country? I mean, if so, they, they're welcome to hide to North Korea. 
But otherwise, this is just so damn normal. Putin's grand narrative, which is embodied within his forever war concept, of a flag-wrapped heroism and self-denial, attempts to spin an ideology of struggle uh, and a vision of a war-fighting Slavic Sparta. These are clearly not actually embedding themselves in people's consciousnesses. Even the great Russia, the, the strong, feared and respected one, you know, it, it is not one that is actually fighting for it. It is one that has achieved it. People may well accommodate themselves to the war because what else can they do? Or they may indeed see the material benefits of getting involved, signing up and so forth. Or they may simply not bother thinking too much about the official line anymore. But in all of these cases, it is pretty clear that the visions that they have for their own futures, and perhaps even more importantly, for their kids' tomorrows, is something very different from what Putin himself is trying to offer. What, after all, has been the highest grossing Russian film ever? Came out beginning of this year. It was Chiburashka, a kind of comedy fairy tale about this, you know, very distinctive Russian big-eared bear thingy. It's escapism. It's even infantilism. There is also a certain wholesome simplicity to it. It is, by all accounts, not a great film. But it's hard to be too down on anything which uh, Alexander Dugin, the notorious, um, and well, especially by his own account, um, nationalist philosopher, says, you know, we don't need Chiburashka. This is some kind of weak-mindedness. With Chiburashka, we can't win. Sorry, we won't win. At the very same time that Chiburashka is filling the cinemas, they're also flocking to watch bootleg Barbie. Not the new wave of patriotic films like The Witness, you know, with its uh, Nazi Ukrainians and such like. No. That's not what Russians are after. And yes, on one level, this is just escapism. This is you're in a miserable situation. You, you don't want to listen to the news. You don't want to listen to the shouty, toxic geopolitical pundits in, in, on evening TV and so forth. You just want something that is going to transport you away from your daily life for a couple of hours. But the point is, this does matter. Putin may be hoping that talk of a forever war not necessarily in those words, but you know, nonetheless, you know, the establishing this notion of a forever war is going to scare the Ukrainians, is going to scare us in the West. What I think he's not fully appreciating is actually how far this may well also be scaring and dismaying his own people. And look, yes, they are not going to necessarily go out and protest. This is a police state. We have to look back to what happened in late Soviet times. People have all kinds of other ways when they feel discontented, when they feel alienated, when they feel that they have no say, but they are not willing to accept whatever nonsense and whatever 
sham ideal dreams the state is trying to peddle, what do they do? They turn to the bottle. They, they commit suicide in higher rates. They steal instead of work. They do all kinds of other things which can be considered to be the petty forms of day-to-day -day resistance. When you can't safely go out and march and protest, you can still feel like you can equalize the power imbalance and strike a blow. Most importantly of all though, you can switch off. If we think of actually how the Soviet party state, which is after all rooted in a much, much more comprehensive and extensive ideological superstructure, even that was unable actually in the, in the longer run to convince people, even that was unable to motivate people, and even that was unable to win its forever war. Because this is what we sometimes forget. Nothing, nothing is new in history. The Cold War, I can remember, look, even I, I mean, I'm, I'm moderately ancient, but not that so. I can remember the days when people were basically talking about the Cold War as something that was going to stretch through the generations. And then it didn't. So I think, you know, one final point we should remember is this. When you hear people talk about a forever war, appreciate, A, that it's actually just a, a glib convention. B, they are probably mobilizing it to try and give a reason as to why we should be changing policy in the West now. C, this is exactly what Putin wants them to be talking about. D, this is also how he's trying to basically build his own state. And E, fortunately, the Russians ultimately aren't buying it. This is not going to be a forever war. This is going to be a longer war than many think. And it's not necessarily, you know, the real war is not necessarily going to end when, when the shooting stops or when Russians are expelled from Ukraine. But it is going to end and probably end quicker, or you might say end more precipitately than we might think. Which is why, and this is my last little bit of soapboxery, which is why we need to be thinking not just about how the war goes, but what happens after the war. Some countries, some groups, some individuals are beginning seriously to think about that. In my opinion, not enough, though. So that's where I think we can do better. So there. Now, now I, ha I have just simply sort of uh, you know, lectured the West on, on what it should be doing. I think it's time for me to go and have a cup of tea. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>